Chapter Fifteen of An Exchange of Souls by Barry Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. I had not kept my cab and started to walk until I found one. I had only gone a few yards from the garden door in Durnford Place when I heard a man running after me and turned sharply around. I found myself face to face with Mr. Valsame. When he left me in the afternoon he had been a collapsed wreck, but he had been drinking again and had recovered his spirits. He seemed to be extremely excited, but he was no longer unsteady on his legs nor thick in his speech. "'I've got you,' he said, shaking a clenched fist. "'This is a fair knockout. This explains everything.' "'I don't know what you mean, Mr. Valsame, and I don't want to know. "'I have had a great deal to try me today, "'and I do not think it would be wise for you to try me any further. "'You had better go home. "'If you want to communicate with me, you can write, you know.' "'But he would not be stopped. "'I'll say what I've got to say. "'I'm not afraid of you, nor of twenty like you.' You were mighty particular that I should give back my key to the garden gate, weren't you? You were ready to pay out your money to save the girl, and you did it. Now I know why. It's a bit indecent seeing Myas has only been dead a few months. Well, I said, if you will have it, you must. I gave him a good punch in the face, and he went down on the pavement. Very slowly, and breathing hard, he collected his hat, which had fallen off, and replaced it, and struggled to his feet. I had waited to see if he wished to attempt the usual form of retort, but as he did not, and merely babbled solicitors, I told him to go to the devil, and left him. Apparently sobriety brought wisdom, for I never heard from Mr. Valsame's solicitors. I spent rather a horrible night. I slept, but the creature that I had talked to in the laboratory haunted my dreams. Next morning there was a great deal to do, and no time to be lost. I went to see Mrs. Lade, going to the Knox Street entrance. I had telegraphed to her to expect me, and found her waiting and rather too well dressed. I said that I had seen her daughter, and I quoted the opinion of a non-existent medical man. I said that her own theory had been quite correct, that Alice's mind had been affected by her profound grief at her loss. The doctor recommended that she should be taken away into the country at once, and I undertook to see to that myself. It was expected that in time she would recover, and then doubtless she would regain her old affection for her mother and wished to go and join her in New York. One has to tell these kindly lies, I suppose. To Mrs. Lade the voice of a doctor was as the voice of a god. Once the medical authority was quoted, it was easy to do anything with her. When I left her, she was going round to fetch Mrs. Porter to help her with the packing. I was to book her passage, and I offered, if she cared about it, to see her off but I was rather glad that the offer was refused. She said that Mrs. Porter had been a great friend to her in her time of trouble, 
and would expect to accompany her to Southampton. I gathered that not only would Mrs. Porter be gratified by being able to render this service to her friend, but that also it would be to her somewhat of a jaunt at the friend's expense. My last words to Mrs. Lade enjoined her to make as much haste as possible and to keep out of her daughter's way. The doctor, I said, had insisted upon that. She might see her just for a moment to say good-bye, but no more than that. I felt quite sure that Mrs. Lade would be far too agitated at this last interview to notice any of these slight changes which had occurred in Myas Lade's appearance. I cannot say that any of this was work which I liked doing. Frankly, I hated it, but it had to be done, and quite as much for Mrs. Lade's own sake as for the sake of Daniel Myas. In the afternoon I went to the stores where I was to buy the outfit. I gave the assistant the measurements, and he found me at once some suits of clothes which would do well enough. The only problem was about the boots. "'You see, sir,' said the assistant, "'it is quite an unusually small size for a man. Ladies' boots, of course, we could do in that size, but that's not what you require.' Ultimately, I succeeded in finding boys' boots which would do. The assistant's words had rather put me on my guard. I paid for the things, and he asked me to what address they should be sent. I was on the verge of giving the name, and then stopped myself. "'I'll take them myself. I have a cab waiting outside. Let them be packed up and taken down to it. In the cab I scribbled a brief note to Myas on a leaf from my pocket-book, telling him what I had done so far, and asking him to speak to me on the telephone at nine o'clock that evening. I stopped at a stationer's and bought an envelope for this. I addressed it to Miss Lade and put the note in the envelope underneath the string of the package. I drove to Knox Street and found that Mrs. Lade was out. She also had an outfit to buy. I directed her servant to take the things just as they were to Miss Lade, but I did not myself go in. Punctually at nine o'clock that night my telephone bell went. I had a long conversation with Myas, pausing at intervals to prevent the exchange from cutting me off. We spoke principally about the house and laboratory. He wished these to be left exactly as they were. I was to find a caretaker for them, and it was to be a caretaker who had never seen himself or the Lades. He wanted me to order for him a portmanteau and a suitcase with the initials M.D. stamped on them. I asked him how he was going to pack the rest of his things, his books and his apparatus. He surprised me rather by saying that he was not going to pack them at all. He was going to take nothing of the kind with him to the cottage. He gave me his reasons. His knowledge of French and his ability to speak it had come back to him quite suddenly and without any effort on his part. He believed that his special scientific knowledge would come back to him in the same way without effort or struggle. All he had to do was to remain quietly up there in the cottage reading my books, wandering over the country, 
trying to think of other things. Somehow the voice no longer inspired me with any feeling of horror. It was exactly like the voice of Daniel Myas. It created the illusion that it was Myas himself, with no change in him who was speaking. It struck me that as far as possible he avoided any but the most commonplace subjects. He took common-sense views about the house in Knox Street. He wondered if it would be worthwhile to let it, but on the whole decided that a caretaker would be preferable. He asked me, almost as if it were a matter of real importance, what I thought the wages of a caretaker ought to be. So little disturbed was I by this conversation that I asked him to come and see me in St. James's Street on the Saturday morning before his departure. I went to bed, well satisfied with my day's work and with my peace of mind restored to me. But no sooner did I fall asleep than the old horror returned to me in the form of a dream. In my dream I was wandering very late at night over a Yorkshire moor. I knew the place well, I had been to a shoot there. It was a stormy night, and the violent wind tore my cap off. I could not find it, and I went on bareheaded, a few drops of cold rain splashing in my face. Already a feeling of imminent horror had begun, though I did not know what form it would take. Suddenly I saw a bright light. It was an electric lamp like those that they have in Hyde Park. I ran towards it as fast as I could go. I clung to it, panting. I was glad to be there in the circle of light and afraid to go out into the dark again. Suddenly, at a little distance, where the light was at its faintest, I saw a figure moving. It danced about fantastically and came nearer. It was a small white figure of a woman, wearing a man's heavy dressing gown. Her long hair streamed in the wind. The wind caught the heavy folds of the dressing gown and tossed them hither and thither. With a quick rush, the figure slid up to me and put two small and cold hands on my throat. It whispered in my ear, and the voice was a husky falsetto, as if Daniel Myas had been trying to imitate the voice of Alice Lade. "'That's exactly it,' said the voice. "'It is against nature, and nature punishes. It is said that there is no place for me, neither in this world nor elsewhere.' I woke with a start and switched on the reading lamp by my bedside. I fetched a book from the library. It was one of the badminton volumes. I got back to bed again and read, studying the subject of punt racing, as though I were getting it up for an examination. I was determined not to fall asleep again. At last there came the early morning sounds the twitter of the sparrows and the clatter of a milk cart. I felt with relief that, after all, the ordinary world was around me. I put down the volume, switched out the light, and almost instantly fell asleep again. I got up at my usual hour, unrefreshed by the sleep, haggard and worn out, and depressed by the feeling that there was something to come, 
something hanging over me. I recalled what it was. Myas was to leave by an afternoon train from Paddington on Saturday afternoon, and I had asked him to come and see me in the morning. There would be time to stop that. I walked across to the telephone and took down the receiver. "'Number, please?' said the girl at the exchange. "'It's all right,' I said. "'It's a mistake. I don't want anything.' After all, I could not do it. It was too absolutely selfish and cowardly. End of chapter 15